Good morning, friends. It's good to be back with you. Two years ago, my wife and I were in Beijing, China. We were visiting dear friends there. Rick is the pastor of an English-speaking international church. Uh, the church was filled, of course, with uh, so many different-looking international faces. One of the common questions that we'd uh, have to ask everyone is, where are you from? Uh, of course, many of the uh, faces were Asian, as you might expect. And the pastor and his wife always invite first-time visitors to lunch after church at a local restaurant. And Cindy and I had a wonderful conversation with two young Chinese uh, women. Afterwards, Rick said, shaking his head, I'll have to tell them they can't come back. Well, we didn't know and asked why is that. He says, because they're Chinese citizens. And they are breaking the law by attending church with us. The police are watching us. They could be jailed, and we could be expelled from their country if they return. My church in Brooklyn has uh, many members who fled European countries with nothing more than what they could fit into one suitcase. They look at situations like what's going on in China and what's going on within our own country and they start to see shadows of their past. They will point to uh, fear tactics in promotions by our government to justify restrictions on freedom of movement. What they see are shadows of government propaganda from their own experience in their former countries. They see leaders in government, in media, and in education accusing people of being enemies of the state because they stray from accepted doctrines of those in power. They see efforts to indoctrinate children in schools with the intent to separate them from their families' traditional beliefs about God and his role in American history. At its root, what we are seeing is nothing new. It has been part of the church's experience throughout the past two millennia. Because at its root, what we are seeing is a clash of religious worldviews. Those who wish to conserve what they see as the values of America's past tend to be those who point to faith that there is a God to whom all are accountable. Those who wish to progress away from the values of America's past tend to be those who have faith that there is not a God of any kind tend to. Not in every case. We are a wondrously incredible mixture of different minds, different thoughts. Some of it's hard to sort through, but some of it becomes clear. If 2,000 years of church history has taught us anything, it's taught us that there will be trials there will always 
be trials. Whether they be great or small, we have an enemy in spiritual places who has both the power and the permission to test us. His empire has lost the war, but he always strikes back at those who have become citizens of heaven. The question which I wish to raise today is simply this. How will you respond if persecution arises? Intense persecution. What if America takes a more intentional shift toward humanistic values that punish people who profess faith in God? I remember from my past, someone who once asked if you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? What if a wave of persecution sweeps over an America, American landscape like it once swept over the church in first century Jerusalem? That persecution resulted in Christians being driven from their homes and jailed and some were even killed by mobs. Think of Stephen. Strangely, to the modern ear, that is when James, the apostle, wrote to the church to encourage them that God was at work for their good during this and through this intense persecution. He wrote, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, it sounds like James seems to think persecution is exciting stuff. This persecution business. I'm not so sure most of us would jump at the opportunity. But then he adds this. If any of you lacks wisdom about this, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it shall be given him. So let us ask God now for wisdom. We should ask why persecution is an option at all, for can anything good come to God's people in this way? Why should joy have any part in the threat of the loss of possessions or liberty or even life? Let's see what God's word demonstrates for us about how he uses persecution to bless his people and to accomplish his purposes in human history. Then we will better know how we ourselves should respond for, uh, to persecution in any way if it comes to us, great or small. God accomplishes great things through persecution. That's what the Bible teaches again and again. But it's not what we want to hear. It's our natural human impulse to be self-focused and that skews our understanding of persecution. Now, what do I mean by self-focused? As you live your life moment to moment, as each one of us lives our life, our lives moment to moment, what seems real to you is how you see things going on around you from your own perspective. 
how it impacts you, the consequences it has for you. That's why, for instance, when you're driving your car, you sometimes tend to judge other people's driving according to how they affect you. If they're driving a little faster than you, then they're speeding. Isn't that a thought that comes to mind? If they're driving slower than you, they are getting in your way. And Lord, help us if they double park in a Brooklyn street and block your lane while they're trying to drop somebody off or go in and get a pizza that they've ordered. Surely they should get a ticket. And it's at moments like these that it never occurs to the self-focused you that you yourself have done these exact same things and that other drivers are thinking these exact thoughts about your driving. By nature, we have to see things from our perspective in relation to everything that's going on around us, and that can create problems. Each person's natural human impulse is to see, is to be self-focused, to say, the way I see things must be the way that they really are. It's almost like presuming, well, it, you know, it is all about me, of course. Well, the reality is it's all about God. The Bible tells us that God is at work in his creation to accomplish what he chooses and what pleases him. And he is at work in the lives of many billions of individual people over the entirety of human history. Acts 17, 26 tells us that from one man, God made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. Friends, we are not here by accident. You and I are here by divine appointment. God directs the affairs of human history in order to bring glory to himself. Nothing is more consequential than that fact. God alone is infinitely capable, and he alone is worthy of the ultimate reverence and respect and deference. He alone is worthy of glory and honor and submission, submission by all, by every human whom he created in his own image. Now, that brings us to our sermon text for today in Daniel chapter 3. If you are looking at uh, your worship guide, you will notice the entire chapter is printed there. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. We'll focus on a few verses. This is a familiar story. Most, most times, I think, we Christians tend to read the book of Daniel entirely from a self-focused perspective. What do I mean by that? We tend to read the book of Daniel from the perspective of God's people who were captured and forced into exile by the Babylonian armies of King Nebuchadnezzar. We see the exiled Judeans crying out to God in repentance for their sins, saying, we're sorry, we blew it. Please take us back to our homeland and to the temple where you reside, O God. 
And then God tells them, tells the prophet Jeremiah to write them a letter saying, chill out people, you're going to be here in Babylon for 70 years, but I have plans to do you good, to prosper you, not to harm you while you're there. Just chill. Clearly that's my translation. In the book of Daniel, we read the stories of Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, as they resist the temptations of Babylonian culture. And to Christians, this is the obvious purpose of the book of Daniel, to give us the example of standing steadfast in the face of temptation. But if that's all we think, then we have missed entirely the story of God's astonishing work in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar. Each of the first four chapters of the book of Daniel display prominently how God reveals himself to Nebuchadnezzar and how God determinedly draws this pagan king into submission to him and into salvation. As part of that plan, God uses the testimony of four faithful Judean young men. In chapter 1, God impresses the king's chief of staff with these four young Judeans when they ask not to eat defiled food, as they call it. After it's seen that they were right and they're stronger and more fit and sharper mentally than any of the others who are eating from the king's rich table. Nebuchadnezzar elevates them to higher positions in government and he assigns to them new Babylonian names befitting their promotions. Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach. Abednego. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar is greatly disturbed by his dream of a mysterious stone from heaven which topples a brilliant, gigantic statue of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay and turns it into dust. When Nebuchadnezzar threatens to execute his entire cabinet, Daniel is brought before the king both to reveal the dream and to interpret this dream. And Daniel proclaims the truth of the gospel of God, the Old Testament gospel, to this king. There is a God in heaven who reveals mystery, mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the times to come. An astonished Nebuchadnezzar replies, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. Then he elevates Daniel to a position akin to secretary of state. Chapter three reveals that Nebuchadnezzar has misinterpreted the vision of this gigantic statue. He believes that God has chosen him to build a statue covered entirely with gold. Forget the silver and bronze and all the rest. Entirely with gold that cannot be overcome. 
symbol of a kingdom that cannot be overcome. But when he commands that all of his government officials bow down to it, jealous political operatives informed the king that the three Judean men whom he had earlier elevated to cabinet positions akin to governors of the province of Babylon have refused to bow down. Nebuchadnezzar is enraged that these Jews have chosen to betray him and will not submit to God's revealed plan for him to be the greatest king of all kings. And he has them thrown into an intense raging blast furnace, only to be astonished once again when God protects them and proves them to be the ones who correctly interpreted God's command. King Nebuchadnezzar commands, then commands, commends them, pardon me, for their faithfulness to God and pronounces doom on anyone in his kingdom who would dare again try to disparage these men. But there's one more chapter to Nebuchadnezzar's salvation. In chapter 4, God brings Nebuchadnezzar to his knees, forcing him into a state of humiliating insanity for a time. And after that time, when God returns his sanity and his kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar gives this testimony. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. The mightiest king which the world had yet known. The one who imposed his authority on every person. The one who made his worldview the only socially acceptable and politically correct way of thinking to be a requirement for every citizen, the one who held power to elevate and to honor those who pleased him and to impoverish and even execute those who defied his whims, this king is the one whom the God of creation chose to, com to reveal himself and then to further bless this idol worshiper with humility and wisdom and citizenship in heaven. That's the story of the book of Daniel, as seen more completely from the big picture of God's point of view, not merely from the perspective of those of us who identify ourselves as God's chosen people. However, let us not be mistaken. God worked this miracle in Nebuchadnezzar's life because just like every other person who responds to the gospel, God chose to bring him to faith before the creation of the world. That's what Ephesians 1.4 tells us. And in Ephesians 2, verse 10 expands on that thought. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. good work that God chose to do in the life of this magnificent self-centered king, God accomplished in part through the faithful works which he prepared for Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah to do. That's what the Bible teaches. You see, God is also at work in his people. 
The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace is one of the most beloved stories of God's deliverance in the entire Old Testament. It is a very familiar story, and in some ways it hardly needs retelling. So I'm not going to read the entire text of the chapter, but rather I wish to retell this familiar story in such a way that it would bring new insights and encouragements to you in your own walk with God. For that is exactly what one particular dear black minister did for me once many, many years ago. I refer to the Reverend Dr. E.V. Hill, the beloved minister of Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles in Watts, which he pastored for 42 years until his death. I sat under the preaching of E.V. Hill one week in 1987 in Atlanta. The occasion was a national foreign missions conference for African-American churches, the very first of its kind. I was there to represent my missionary organization to try to encourage African-American churches to take up the challenge to befriend foreign students studying at nearby colleges and universities in the hope that some would embrace the gospel and return to their own people as missionaries, especially students from those nations whose borders are closed to missionaries. But I've never forgotten one part of one particular sermon that E.V. Hill preached that week. It made a profound impact on what I learned about how much I could trust God in the midst of persecution. That night, Dr. Hill preached from the book of Daniel, chapter 3, our text today. He entitled his sermon, What God Will Do for His Beloved. What God will do for the people who belong to him and whom he loves with an everlasting love. That night, I needed someone to encourage me. I had been long undergoing a kind of persecution from two Christian leaders in my own ministry team. I'd been trying to do the right thing by quietly standing firm against dishonesty and abuse of authority, as I saw it. And I'd been doing so for two years, and I was weary. I needed encouragement. Evie Hill began by speaking in a conversational style of preaching that starts easy and slow and then surges up to climax. He set up the drama of the three Hebrew boys as they stood firm in their conviction to not bow down to other gods. Now read along with me in your text, starting at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury 
and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. After reading this, Dr. Hill pauses and makes an unexpected remark. He says, you know, sometimes I think it must be rather boring being God. I think you sit up there in heaven administrating all these prayers and your people rarely make any bold requests of you. There's Mrs. Jones. Oh, Father, watch over my daughter today and guide her. Yes, yes, dear, you ask me that every day, and I do it every day just like I promised. Then there's Mr. Smith over here. Oh, God, I need you to bless my work today so I can provide for my family. Yes, son, yes. I always take care of that for you, but keep asking. Dr. Hill observes that's the first thing that God promises to give to his beloved people, and that is his attention. You have God's complete attention, he says. He watches over you as only God can. He knows your need. He knows your pain. He knows what you are facing. He does not turn his focus away from you. He does not lose track of you. You have his complete attention. At this point, Dr. Hill surprisingly changes his tone. Suddenly, he gets animated and he looks down off the pulpit to the floor and he said, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego? Then he turns as if he's talking to somebody next to him and he says, Jesus, look what these boys are asking for. Now that's a bold request. And he looks back and says, Jesus, I want you to get down there with them right now and be with them. He says, and that is the second thing that God promises to his beloved and that is his presence. And by this year, this time, my, my face is covered in tears. I needed to know that my Savior was present with me in my persecution. My heart jumped in my throat as I realized that Evie Hill was speaking of the fourth man who appeared in the fiery furnace, standing next to the three Hebrew boys who had been thrown into the flame. Picking up at verse 24 in our text. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. I don't know what the people around me were doing. I think all of us were transfixed on this message. I realized anew, that's what Jesus would do for me too. He will stand right there next to me as I endure my persecution. I do not have to give into the fear of the flames of my trial because Jesus is with me. I do not have to lash out at my tormentors because Jesus is with me. Over the next year, my situation actually got worse, not better. 
I actually became very ill for a few years. The church that had sponsored us as missionaries and supported us financially stepped up and took action. They made a request of my organization and took us back on furlough and restored me to health and then restored us back to the ministry. By that time, my persecutors were gone. Not long after that, I entered seminary in midlife. Then I became a pastor to five different hurting churches. My trial had taught me that the sin of self-focus is wrapped around the core of my innermost being. Self-focus is the anchor of our old sin nature which has twisted and misshapen the image of God in each of us. Self-focus is the essence of the lie that tempted Adam and Eve in the garden that they too could be like God, choosing what would be right and wrong according to what pleased them. That privilege has always been a, re a privilege reserved for the God who created them. So when Adam and Eve chose to believe that God had lied to them and they could have the same cosmic power which he possessed, that choice transformed them from wondrous God-centered creations into souls made in the image of God but now twisted by the sin of self-focus. And that changed everything for them and for all of us who were born to them. That's why there is persecution in the world. Every single human being seeks his or her own way because it's the only reality that we seem to be able to see by nature. Our twisted, self-focused nature is a congenital disease of the soul that blinds us to the sovereign authority of God. Whenever sinful individuals gain power over others, it is in their nature to insist that these others do what they say because that's what seems right to them. When enough sinful individuals gather a crowd of followers, their collective powers can be used to force larger crowds to submit to their view of reality. And when collective power forces entire populations to bow to its wishes, such empires can incite some serious persecution for anyone who refuses to bow down to their gods and their view of reality. That's why there is persecution in the world. Persecution can be found in national or local governments. It can be found in schools and in neighborhoods. Persecution can be found in, in, in your place of work or in civic groups. It can take place among relatives. The effects of sin within each soul will not be completely eradicated until the day that Jesus returns and calls a close to history. The issue comes down to one question. How should you respond to persecution? As people of the book and as followers of Jesus Christ, how should we respond when persecution comes upon us in small or large ways? The Apostle Peter also wrote a letter to Christians who had been forced to flee their homes due to persecution. 
he begins what we now call the epistle of 1 Peter with these words. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Ah, they've been chased out of Jerusalem as well. Peter writes to encourage them. Chapter 3 of 1 Peter offers a three-point action plan in response to persecution, which has scattered these believers far away from their home. Point one, be prepared to fight evil with good. Point two, be prepared to suffer for doing good. Point three, be prepared to give a good answer. Let's take a quick look at these. Be prepared to fight evil with good. In chapter 3, verses 9 and 11, 1 Peter, we read, Do not repay evil with evil, or insult with insult, but with blessing. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. We heard the reason earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. Followers of Jesus have inherited the blessings of God that he promised to give to Abraham and his spiritual descendants, blessings of his attention, his presence, his protection and provision. When God announced these blessings to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he says, I'm bestowing these blessings on you so that through your spiritual descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. My friends, you and I are inheritors of that blessing. The blessings which we have been given by God are to be passed on to others. We're not to hoard them. We're to plant them in the hearts of others who need the Lord, regardless of their response to our Christian gospel. That starts by responding to anger with intentional compassion. Proverbs 15 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. I don't know about you, but do you know how hard it is for me to respond to anger with gentleness? There has to be some serious praying on my part beforehand and thinking and anticipating, reminding myself, when this happens, how will you respond? I have to be intentional. Be prepared to fight evil with good. Secondly, be prepared to suffer for what, doing what is right. Again, in 1 Peter 3, verse 13 and following, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. I've begun to notice more anger and vitriol among people who are working to push a godless worldview on American society today. Fear seems to be a driving force, not love. They seem to see conspiracies behind every opponent. Of course, it's easy for any of us to see conspiracies, but I have never seen anything like this. In these verses that Peter's quoting, He's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. The original quote in God's word helps us to explain why we need not fear 
in uh, Isaiah, we read, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. He will be a sanctuary. The follower of Christ does not need to give in to such fear, though we can be just as susceptible to it. You can choose to remember that Jesus is with you through the fire of persecution, and that can make all the difference for you. Be prepared to fight evil with good. Be prepared to suffer for what, doing what is right. And finally, be prepared to explain your good response. Verse 15 continues, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. We are commanded to plan ahead of time what our response will be to people who, you, who are used to receiving back anger for the anger that they threw at you. When you respond to bitter, abusive speech with an intentional, gracious response, it will prompt questions. And let's remember, we can't give an answer as the scripture commands until we first get the questions. What's going to prompt those questions? It must be our intentional actions to do good to them who hurt you. And your response need to be nothing more than simply, Jesus has freed me from my anger. That's a good answer. It can be more, but that's a great starting point. I mentioned this little gem the last time I was here. It's been a guiding principle in my life ever since I heard a missionary statesman say it. We are citizens of heaven left on earth to tell citizens of earth how to become citizens of heaven. How to embrace the kingdom of God, which the Lord Jesus came to proclaim. Dear friends, the key to responding to persecution is not a nice, simple three-step plan. Such a list may help you make your response more intentional and more effective, but the power behind your response comes from within. That's what needs to be strengthened. The power to take on persecution and overcome its devastating consequences is your freedom from the fear of what you might lose. The promise of God to you guarantees that no one can take from you those things which are real treasures. The inward confidence that you can let go of things for God's big picture purposes leaves you free to be unafraid. For years I have kept framed in my home an artistic rendering of question one from the Heidelberg Catechism. Here's what it asks and answers. What is your only comfort in life and in death? that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood 
has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live What have we learned about trials today? There will be persecution. There's always persecution. But God accomplishes great things through persecution. So let us prepare ourselves to respond well to any kind of persecution, whether great or small. Let us look to Jesus, who knows personally what it means to suffer because he suffered for us. Let us look to Jesus who has the power to stop the fires of persecution at a moment's notice. And let us look to this Jesus who will always be present with us to guard our souls while he shapes us for heaven and works through us on earth to bring glory to God. O oh, great God of highest heaven, humble our turmoiled hearts. Take away our fears. Cause us to see afresh such confidence in your power and your love for us that we need not fear anything. And while we will try to face persecution with joy. Help us to be real about the pain. Help us to also recognize that that joy can exist side by side with loss and the hurt that comes from that. But give us the capacity to release these things into your hand for the promises of your loving kindness for eternity are great and they are true and you have the power to secure us. So train our hearts to trust you, we pray, by the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus.